still about a minute away from the official start of our May 2021 Peace Alliance Action Call. I'm Dan Kahn, the former National Field Coordinator, and I'm here with Kathy Kidd, who's the current National Field Coordinator. So folks are welcome to have your cameras on if you like. I think that's kind of pretty... This is Beth. Hi, Beth. Welcome. Yeah, it's up to you if you'd, if you'd rather not have your camera on, but you're certainly more than welcome to um, do so. Is Kendra in? I don't see her yet. This is the first time we're, hi Nancy, we're doing sort of a three-way logistical coordination here. So um, waiting to get the thumbs up from Dee that we are recording and live streaming on Facebook. That's gonna happen momentarily. So hi, Cynthia. Yeah, she's, she gave the thumbs up. Oh, she did, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't see it. <laughs> so, uh, folks in Facebook land, welcome. Were there two thumbs up, Kathy, or just one? Two. There were two. All right. So we are recording. We're live uh, for our um, monthly action call for May 2021. Um, you can also find this as a podcast at Peace On on our website. And welcome to the folks who are on Facebook or are catching this live streaming. Um, if you are on Facebook and enjoy this, you may want to go to our website, peacealliance.org later, where you can catch, pick up the recording and share it with your network. Um, Again, I'm, I'm Dan Kahn, if that didn't show up on the recording, I'm, I'm the former National Field Coordinator for the Peace Alliance and just recently passing the torch to Kathy Kidd, who was the National Field Director some 10 years ago and now is back in the saddle taking the reins again. <laughs> Our agenda for tonight's call, we, we have a couple of very special things going on. We're gonna have some memorial time to uh, respect the passing of Bishop George McKinney and um, have a chance to hear from his son, Pastor Glenn McKinney, and then perhaps from some other folks. Um, and after that, we're gonna have a, another special guest who is Helgi Maki, who is a pioneer in trauma-informed lawyering. And then we'll have a chance for discussion and question and answer with Helgi. So um, I'm gonna pass this over to Kathy to say hello and then introduce Nancy, who's gonna right. welcome our first special guest. Welcome everyone. And uh, Dan, you still have one more hour, so you're not quite former yet. <laughs> so um, yeah, uh, welcome to, to our call tonight. It's very exciting to have Pastor McKinney here. I wasn't fortunate enough to, to know his father, but in reading about him, I was very inspired by the work he, he did. So Nancy, do you wanna go ahead and, and make the introduction? Okay, sure. Um, well, thanks, Kathy. Dan, um, I know Bishop um, George McKinney and his, and his son, Pastor Glenn McKinney through Cynthia Gillum, who's on our, do a little wave there, Cynthia. Um, We've worked, um, we've worked together for a long time to make a peace building part of the landscape of San Diego. And Cynthia has worked with both the California Department of Peace Building Campaign and the Southeast San Diego Kids for Peace, who are actually some of them young adults by now and through her church, St. Stephen's for many years. And, and she's brought all those um, entities together as a community, really. Um, she first connected with our California Peace Building Group in about 2009 through Brian Gibbs and Sue Trisler, who were then our San Diego leads. And she asked me to acknowledge both of them and um, to thank them and express her gratitude for their work and French and their guidance. Uh, Cynthia told me that she thinks of the Bishop as a father and she thinks of Pastor Glenn like a, uh, they both come from a long tradition of service and with the community and with Stephen's church, which is an anchor in San Diego inner city for almost 60 years now. 
Bishop McKinney marched with Dr. Martin Luther King. He advised U.S. presidents and was a core leader in his church for over 70 years. He was also a longtime supporter of the Department of Peace Building um, campaign and of the Diego Kids for Peace. And Pastor Glenn um, served as a youth pastor and he's now the head pastor of the church. Um, after the recent decision relating to George Floyd's murder, he said that this can be a time and a place to start healing and to together and to push for peace. Mm -hmm. And having, having just celebrated Mother's Day and being the mother of four sons, it struck me that Pat Glenn uh, is the youngest of five sons, and I can definitely relate to the, the blessing and motion of that. <laughs> I feel for your parents, you know? <laughs> um, about uh, Bishop McKinney, I just want to quote from a letter that he wrote to Congressman Juan Vargas in support of the P Department of Peace Building. And in that letter, he said, I have had um, a long, a lifelong commitment to peaceful, to peace building and peaceful living in my community. I'm often called upon during times of turmoil and distress to be a voice for reason and peace. Um, as an official cabinet level position for secretary of the U.S. Department of Peace Building, that will go a long way to create an environment that chooses peace over us, love over hate, and friendship over enemies. So it's my honor to um, introduce Pastor Glenn and, and learn from the next segment. So thank you so much for being on our call. Certainly a pleasure to be on here um, uh, with such a, uh, 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 an honor to uh, be here representing my father, my late father, Bishop King. Uh, he truly was a man of peace and uh, growing up in the household, the youngest of five was uh, never a dull moment. Um, just being the son of a preacher man, <laughs> a son of a man of the community, a man that learned and knew the importance of not just being a father to his own children, but being a father to the community. As, uh, as a young pastor, he was 30 years old when he started St. Stephen's. And he had recently uh, left his job from the uh, probation department. So he was uh, in the probation department when he first got to San Diego back in 1958. And uh, he it, it received an award when he was at the probation department as a probation officer of the year. Uh, I cannot remember exactly what year it was, but that was all a part of his experience that shaped his ministry. Being in probation, he saw the, the, uh, the absent fathers and the broken families uh, and, and, and seeing the, the, the results of that and how it impacted uh, the community. And he felt, uh, the, the tug of, of, of the Spirit of God to, to be the salve, to be the, the ointment needed in the community that was hurting so bad. So God put it on his heart to start a church along with my mother, Jean McKinney. Now, now she was a powerful woman. She passed in 2004. Uh, she was a powerful woman that stood by his side and really helped him shape and form the ministry through the guidance of the Lord. And uh, some of the things can you guys hear me okay? Yes. Some, some of the things that, that came out of the ministry was uh, a house for wayward boys, um, uh, the Sunlight Credit Union, uh, um, uh, we had a, the Yellow House was a house for the AIDS patients. And that, that, that was when the epidemic of AIDS was really uh, running rampant in the, uh, the mid eighties. Uh, God put it on his heart to, to have a place of refuge for those who were, who were like modern day lepers where nobody really wanted to touch them, nobody wanted to, you know, it, it's like the, the church in a lot of ways turned their backs to these people, but my father saw the need and knew that, you know, God has given us the strength and God has given us the power to, to reach and touch. Just as Jesus touched those who were unwanted, the, the lepers, he touched them and healed them. And so, so God used my father and so, and my mother in so many ways in this ministry. Um, uh, and just being at the forefront, being 
uh, 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 you know, right in, in the house when all this was going on and hearing the discussions uh, going a lot of the a lot of the times growing up, I didn't really understand what they were discussing, but it was ministry always going on service to people uh, to bring peace to the land when when uh, the inequity of, uh, of uh, either redlining and things that were going on where, where people of color uh, weren't um, weren't allowed to buy houses. I, I can tell you a story in 1970. Uh, my father, as our family was growing, we we saw 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 to buy a house in Mount Helix. I was just a baby. I don't even remember. I just remember the stories. But we had closed on the house. This is in 1970. Closed on the house, and the neighbors saw that uh, a black uh, a family was moving into the neighborhood. So they protested uh, the bank and they protested the, the realtor. So they had to give us our money back and they, they forced us out of escrow. And this was just in 1970. So mm -hmm. like this, uh, growing up, and he grew up in the rural South and he was born in 1932 in Arkansas. So this, this is a pattern that he saw all his life, but so many people saw this and, and experienced it, but they didn't have uh, the impetus to, to, to speak out. They just said, oh, this is just the way things are. This is just the way this, this is just the, our lot in life. But my father had a very early experience with who God is. And, and, and God told him, even as a boy, he, he was saved at eight years old. And at a, as a boy, he knew that his life was meant and, and he was created to, 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 to be a peacemaker and to bridge the gap and to bring education and awareness to people who are ignorant, and a lot of the lot of the, uh, the 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 things that we suffer today, a lot of the things that we uh, fall victim to, are out of ignorance. It's because we don't take the time and know each other and 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 cross the line. We have to. And he, matter of fact, that's one of the titles of my father's book, "Cross the Line," and how it, how it is important in ministry that we cannot necessarily just operate as the black church or the white church, but we have to cross the line and we have to be example, an example to the community so that the community uh, can see that when we get to heaven, it's not gonna be a black section, it's not gonna be a white section. It's not gonna be any red line in heaven, but we're all gonna be there uh, serving the Lord and praising God together in, in, uh, in, in all of our, our various uh, uh, experiences and all, uh, all the experiences we had on earth and, and we're going to praise God together. So he saw that vision of heaven and wanted to bring that kingdom mindset to the earth and everywhere he went, everywhere he had an, uh, uh, an impact, everywhere he had an influence. He wanted to make sure that there's no little eyes and uh, big U's in the kingdom of God. And, and, and experiencing that, growing up in that household, growing up seeing all that ministry had such an indelible part in my life. Um, I, I went away to, Morehouse College in, in Atlanta, and that's the same school that Dr. Martin Luther King graduated from, Spike Lee, Samuel L. Jackson. It's a lot of uh, great prominent men that have come out of that school. And uh, leaving from San Diego and, and seeing uh, the things that we were up against, you know, racially and just, just, just inequities that we were up against here in San Diego, going to a city like that and having the experience growing up in my father's house, hearing the stories of Jim Crow and all of that, and and never having a, never having hatred in his heart or retribution, but also uh, uh, having those experiences growing up in Morehouse, growing up in my dad's house and my, and, my mom, and my mother's household, fusing those experiences together really has given me a a, 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 a great um, and a, a great background. Not only a great background, but a a, a wonderful uh, hope that we can make something happen that, will, that, that our children will be proud of. And so my father passed, he passed March the 20th, and he knew that his life, when he, he was ready to go, and he knew that his life had been spent making a difference. And that has inspired me, you know, I'm 51. And, you know, I, I would like to think I have a few years left. I, I hope the Lord will spare my life so that I can continue this legacy of peace and hope to the community and not just to our community, but we in San Diego, we can be a beacon of light that will change the trajectory 
the way people think, the way people process and, and the way people love each other and how we can support each other. We have that opportunity. And my father, through all, his, all of his experiences, just living here in San Diego for uh, over 60 years, um, uh, we, we have an opportunity to do so much, to stand on these shoulders and not just him, but all those in the past that have gone and fought with him. We have so many examples and, and we should really be very hopeful in knowing that our future is bright, even though there's so many things that we have to overcome and we have to do the work. That's another thing. We just can't sit and hope for peace. We can't sit and, and, and wish it to come, but we have to be willing to do the work. And what I saw my father and my mother, they were, they were willing to do the work. They sacrificed. They understood that everybody was not going to uh, get with the program, even on, on the black side. I can tell you one story. Uh, I, uh, even on the black side and on the white side, everybody was not going to get with the program. There was a story that my father uh, ordained a, a, an ex-wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. This man gave his life to the Lord and wanted to be a part of our church organization. And my father was a mentor to him. He, he had been saved for prior to my father uh, meeting him. But when he met my father, my father met him with, so, with, with open arms and, 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 and he, the love that he had, my father had for him was genuine. Now, it was funny because here this ex-Klan member was coming into, into our side of the town and, and, and being a part of our ministry. There was not, not everybody welcomed him with open arms because of his <laughs> past. So knowing that, that, that Christ teaches forgiveness, and that is, the, that is one of the, the aspects of our faith, is, is that we have to forgive one another. It doesn't matter. You know, everybody is, is God's child. And even though they might have done heinous things, there, there has to be a place in a heart where we offer forgiveness to that person. Because if Jesus took on the sins of the world, and died for the sins of the world that, that we could be redeemed back to the Father. If he did that, we have to do that in every aspect of our life. So that was just one of many stories, one of many things that, that we experienced. Uh, uh, if I could say anything about my father, I would say he lived a life submitted to Christ and to the mission of Christ. It, it was no more I for him, but it was Christ. And so in order for us to really embrace peace and to be peace and to show peace doing the work, we, we, we have to take that eye out of it. We, we, and we have to start listening to where people, where, where, where they're hurting and, and not suggest, oh, you probably shouldn't feel that way or you probably should look at it this way. No, we need to go where they are and, and meet them where they are. And that's really where we're gonna start seeing peace because if someone, if I feel that someone is listening to my heart and listening to my, my pain and, and hearing me, then I think that we can bring about peace that way because there, is, there becomes an alliance. There becomes a, 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 you know, a, a, a care that uh, you know, there's, a, there's, a, there's a place of a point of connection because I'm listening to you and I'm hearing you. And I believe we all want the same thing in the end. We want peace. I wanna come home. I wanna have peace in my home. I wanna go to my job. I wanna have peace in my job. I want to go to school. I want to have peace in my. I want to go to the grocery store, and I want to have peace. You know, everybody wants peace, but we have to be willing to do the work. And Bishop George McKinney left a legacy of work towards peace and giving his life towards peace. And we have to understand that we're not called to be comfortable. We're not called to 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 live in the comfort zone all of our life. This peace will put us in a place. Uh, of uncomfortability and we have to be okay with that because it's peace is, is, is what we want peace is what we want to achieve mm -hmm. i could go on and on talk about my pops but i, I know we only have a little bit of time <laughs> does anyone want to ask anything of pastor glenn or make a comment if you knew his father I'll say something, Pastor Glenn. I love what you said at the end, because too often we think peace is no conflict, right? Not pushing up against anything, um, not pushing up against injustice. 
And so I, I think we confuse that sometimes because sometimes you do have to have fierce compassion. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And your dad wrote eight books. And I'm wondering, where did he find the time to do that? Well, he must not have slept very much. Well, you know, he didn't, but he was he used his time wisely. He was a copious reader and he would write and the writings that uh, I mean, he, he wrote uh, he read from uh, uh, you know, like Bonhoeffer and, um, um, uh, I mean, the list goes on and on, uh, the, the, the philosophers that, and the, those people inspired, their stories inspired him to write his story and to give his perspective. So he always found the time. I mean, and that's the thing about it. There's no excuse for us because God has given us all uh, unique gifts and we cannot look and uh, look at ourselves. And, and this is another thing I learned from him. We cannot just look at ourselves as just mere uh, uh, mortals that, that are here just to breathe air and to eat food and, you know, but God has given us a gift that would show who he is in us. And Bishop McKinney took that gift and put it on paper. He put it in, in sermons. He did all he could. He, because when you become inspired to do something, when you come, when you understand your purpose in life, it's like, you, you, you know, you don't, you can't sleep because you, you got to get this message out. You understand that life is fleeting. And my father understood that. And so he used his time. Uh, um, I, I forgot to mention, he, he had a, uh, he found, he and my mother founded a school in 1978. Uh, and it went all the way from kindergarten to the 12th grade. I'm a graduate of that school. I graduated in 1987. I started in the fourth grade and graduated in 1987. And I went on to uh, go to college in, in Morehouse College in Atlanta. But these are things that, so it was always something going on. He, he, he seized the moment. He sees the moment. He understood that each moment that I have is a gift from God, and I must use it to his glory. And I want to make an impact with every moment I have. I want the world to know that, that we are special. I want the world to know that, that we all have something to give. We all have something yeah. to contribute. Yeah. Well, this has been very inspiring. I'm, I'm motivated to watch your church on Facebook. Oh, thank you. Well, we Watch your you. sermons. We're going to be opening soon. So, uh, well, actually, we opened uh, with a 50% uh, um, a capacity last week um, or a week before last. So we're slowly moving into normalcy. But you're welcome to come anytime. 5825 Imperial Avenue on San, in San Diego. You're welcome to come um, and join. Yeah. Do you stream on Facebook? Yes, we do. So we do live. Okay. On yeah. Our, our I'm in Houston, so I'd have to do Facebook. Okay. Oh, you're in Houston. My brother <laughs> yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. yeah. But it's eight o'clock on Sundays, 8 a.m. So that would be uh, 10 o'clock your time. Right. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. This has well, been Mitch, a pleasure. I'm a, a longtime member of St. Of Stephen's and uh, with uh, Bishop George Dallas McKinney. And uh, I'd just like to say a word. I had the opportunity to, as a young woman, to come to that church and to grow. And that uh, Glenn was about two or three years old. And looking from a parishioner's looking up into the pulpit, you get a different view sitting from the pew. And yeah. as a pastor, he taught us not only how to be Christians, but he taught us how to be family uh, people. He was never too busy for his family, nor for uh, his children. Glenn was about four years old. He got away from his mother. He ran up into the pulpit and his father was just preaching away and his father just reached down, grabbed him up in one arm, held him on the right side and he never missed a word of preaching. Um, <laughs> he just kept right on preaching and Glenn looked around and squirmed around for a couple of minutes and scooted down and ran back to his mother. To that's me, that's amazing. a sign of a man of humility, of love. And he taught us to yeah. love one another and to forgive every Sunday we were taught. If you do not forgive, we were taught Mark 11, 22. So many of us walked around with unforgiveness and didn't know that we had that in our hearts. But because of a pastor who taught that for years, we were able to go and break some of those chains that had bound families apart for so long. And I wanted to say that Bishop McKinney had great influence. He went downtown and he slept with the homeless people. He said, let me see what this is about. We're ministering here at this church. He taught us to feed the homeless, to go out and to men and to see them. But he said, let me go and sleep so I can understand what my fellow man and fellow brother, sister is going through. And he slept out on the ground downtown San Diego. And if he was walking through 
on the church grounds. If someone said, Bishop, I don't care who he was speaking to. It could be Reverend Jesse Jackson. It could be whomever. He would stop and say yes and have a conversation with you. If you were downtown, someplace, wherever you saw him, it made no difference. He always took time and he taught us to love one another, to forgive one another, to look after one another. And I just wanted to take that opportunity to say, and Pastor Glenn, we're so proud of you as our pastor because we can see that you are your own man. You will walk in your own footsteps, but you've had a great year. You have a great legacy to look to. And as you begin to set your mission in place, we're here to support you as our new pastor because we know you were raised in a, in a household of praise and prayer. And we believe in you and we, su we support you just as we supported our great pastor and our great bishop, George Dallas McKinney. Thank you, Ms. Clark. Could I just, I just wondering if uh, Cynthia or any other folks from his church wanted to say a quick word before, I know we have to move on, but um, uh, I've heard so much from Cynthia and I'd love for her to share a little bit. Hi, my name is Paulette Laster and I have been a member at St. Stephen's for over 20 years. And one of the um, fond memories that I have of Bishop McKinney was that he was a, a very approachable and personable man. I had been a member of St. Stephen's for, for only a short time. And I just, I had approached him uh, timidly uh, just to say hello. And he's called me by my, my first and last name. I said, you know me? <laughs> you know, because there were so many members, I just was flabbergasted that he even knew my name. Uh, and he's just, he was just such an approachable, and loving man. And I will always remember that and cherish those memories. And I do uh, have a, another fond memory of him. Uh, Bishop uh, was a proponent for women. Many women in the Church of God in Christ uh, didn't have a voice, but because Bishop you know, had, had such stature in the church and he was a proponent for women, he opened the door for a lot of women in ministry to go forward and become elders and pastors and bishops even. And so I just really admire him for his character and for his, his ability to uh, stand his ground when mm -hmm. others, others were, um, were not uh, for that. He stood his ground for, um, for women. Yeah. Thank you so much. So we, we're going to hear from Cynthia and then we'll have to move on. Go ahead, Cynthia. Good evening, everyone. Um, it is with great pleasure to to just be here tonight to to um, to just think about a great man. And and when I went to Bishop and I I told the Bishop about the children and the things that they were going through, and I said, Bishop, I I want to work with the children about peace. And he told me pretty much. As long as you follow Jesus, I'll follow you. Um, I'll stand by you. And it was nothing that myself and the kids could go and talk to him about. He just listened. He was, he was just like Jesus. I mean, I don't mean to get emotional, but I really am. And Pastor Glenn, I thank you for continuing to support the legacy of your father. And U.S. Department of Peace, you have been such a blessing to San Diego to, to help the young people get their word out and to help people understand what's really going on here. So I say to all of you, as we follow God and listen to God as the young people, continue to um, just pray for us. And thank you again. Thank you, Cynthia, so much. Thank you so much, Pastor Glenn. It's been a pleasure to be free to, to have you with us. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. So we'll move on to, to Dan. Yeah, and, and we understand if there are folks that, that need to leave us, we understand that folks have busy schedules, but of course, everyone is welcome to stay for, for the entirety of our hour. Um, we have our next special guest coming up, and that is Helgi Maki. And Helgi is a groundbreaking advocate for trauma-informed legal practices. 
and she'll be sharing trauma-informed approaches to conflict resolutions and lawyering as a means to improve access to justice and to reduce harm. Helgi is a graduate of the University of Toronto Faculty of Law with an MA from Carleton University, and she joined the Ontario Bar in 2003 and the New York Bar in 05. Helgi is the co-editor of a forthcoming book on trauma-informed lawyering, which will be published by the Law Practice Management Division of the American Bar Association, and is also a mindfulness instructor, a movement teacher, and an executive coach. Uh, we're very thrilled to have you with us, and I'm excited to learn more about trauma-informed lawyering in the, the landscape of the changing face of the practice of law in general. So thank you for being with us. Oh, thank you so much, Dan. And uh, thank you, Pastor Glenn. I, um, you know, it, every um, presentation or in invitation I receive, I uh, appear in a different environment. And I was just so moved by everything I just heard in, in this short time here. And uh, I would invite you and participants here today to have this uh, talk or this discussion around trauma-informed law and trauma-informed conflict resolution to be a dialogue. I mean, um, really working in trauma-informed ways is about dealing with discomfort. It is about doing the, the work of peace and not waiting for it. Um, and so in so I, I um, am in the process of writing a book for the American Bar Association on how to deal with trauma in conflict. And it, we speak about the work of Brian Stevenson, who is the founder of the Equal Justice Initiative, who says you know, justice does not come when we are comfortable, when it's convenient. We must be willing to deal with discomfort and inconvenience and also gain proximity, gain understanding, gain proximity by having closeness, not in a way that crosses boundaries that wouldn't be appropriate for conflict resolution, but understanding, not working from a distance. And so it sounds like, uh, can you really exemplify that? Uh, so I wanted to begin there. Is there, um, I'm, just, I'm wondering if, if uh, Pastor Glenn might, does that sound like it connects with what you were saying? I, I wanted to invite you into this discussion because it's, it's not a regular discussion. I do have some slides to show, but really uh, the memory of a man uh, is, is beyond all information. So I just wanted to. I appreciate that. that. Yes, yes, it is a part. That is um, what you're bringing to the table is what we need. We need to hear because um, a lot of so many people are operating with with trauma and it's and it becomes uh, uh, just normalcy for them. And, yeah. and, and it's not and there is no outlet. So there's a lot of people just don't they're carrying it because they don't have an outlet and and they've seen it. it's generational sometimes and and they don't even know that hey you're supposed to be walking around with this with this weight on you and so many people have gone on and and, and lived their life and and a lot of their lives have been cut short because they don't understand the stressors that are that are uh, that are associated with this trauma so what you're doing is uh is is phenomenal and uh, I, I, yeah definitely uh we'd, i'd love to even talk more offline if, if we can you know i would love to do that thank you so much absolutely so um, there's a new film that is coming out. It's called Wisdom of Trauma, and uh, it features Gabor Mate. And uh, he, I'm Canadian. He's Canadian. Um, and so uh, my funny name is Finnish from Finland. My dad was from Finland. And so uh, in, when we're thinking about trauma and conflict, uh, we're thinking about it in not a medical way. We're thinking about something that overwhelms our human capacity to respond with all of our freedom, with all of our human resources. And so uh, Resna Menachem, who wrote My Grandmother's Hands, um, speaks about trauma in these general terms. Trauma can be anything that happens too much, too fast, too soon, too long, coupled with not enough of what should have happened that would have been resourcing. So this is what we understand about trauma when we're in conflict is that it can be a limitation. And so we don't need to be so limited if we step back. So if I'm gonna, I'm gonna sort of sum it up because we're, this is a different space than the usual information space, right? We're speaking, hearing of uh, memory of, of this great, great man, Bishop McKinney. And so it, um, 
if I were to summarize trauma-informed luring or conflict resolution in a sentence, Elie Wiesel talks about it in a way. He says, you know, he was asked, he's the author of Night and wrote about the Holocaust. And his advice to his students was always think higher and feel deeper at the same time, right? So when we're working with conflict in a trauma-informed way, what we're seeking to do is work with others in an emotionally intelligent way, human intelligence, spiritual intelligence, in a way that has service design, avoids inflicting additional unnecessary harm. You know, sometimes conflict is uncomfortable, so we can't avoid discomfort. Also has a focus on well-being because you know, lawyers, what 40% of lawyers report some indicia of, of mental health issues. And anyone working in this space is often affected by vicarious trauma or indirect trauma, just from seeing evidence or hearing stories over and over again. And then lastly, trauma-informed conflict resolution seeks to promote access to justice because there's an inverse relationship between the availability of justice and trauma. Trauma is complicated and it's often counterintuitive. People affected by trauma, they're their narrative may not be linear or their memory may not be what lawyers or police officers or any justice official is trained to think of as normal. So those are the four parts, right? Emotional human intelligence, spiritual intelligence, right? All of the humanities, intelligence, service design, well-being at the center, just like your, you folks are putting peace at the center and access to justice. I do have a... Uh, would it be okay if I shared my screen? I have a little presentation here. It's, some of this trauma stuff can be a bit easier when we have a little visual here. All right, so I'll put it in slideshow mode. So I, I come to this work by way of, of loss and I'm gonna tell you about something that's uncomfortable. Um, my mom, she died uh, by suicide. And her life was shaped by, um, by violence and by Me Too, you know, that kind of violence and also a background of, of war. And so uh, Pastor Glenn was talking about things that won't leave us alone. And so this is a, a material that wouldn't leave me alone. In my conventional life, I tried to hide what had happened. And, but when the police come knocking, you can't hide it anymore. And so, but people who knew me always knew that I had connected with uh, people affected by uh, sexual assault and domestic violence or complex family matters. And so I started doing research about six years ago and thought like, what can I do with this thing that happened? Shakespeare said in, as, as you like it, sweet are the uses of adversity. And what, what use can I put this to? So, uh, so far there's been, you know, law article and now this book that's going to come out at the end of the year so i'd like to honor my co-authors marjorie florestal she's a prof at uc davis law school and my friend my canadian friend myrna mccallum she created a podcast um, and she is a, a residential school survivor herself she's located in, in british columbia where i grew up this is a article i published to supreme court law review in canada and then Kim Wright, who connected me with your group here. Um, and she's a, a founding member of this approach called integrative law, a holistic sort of peace focused approach to conflict and uh, contracts. So normally in presentations, I talk a bit about trauma and grief and practice, what it looks like. Sometimes we don't expect what it looks like. And then a bit about the communication tools we can use. And then if you wanna talk about the book or any other questions you have, or we can talk more about, um, about Pastor Glenn's dad. And then we can also uh, talk about meaning. Usually that's the other tool people wanna to bring into things. It's something called moral injury and moral repair. So uh, trauma doesn't always look like what we want it to look like. It can look very inconvenient. You know, someone's swearing at us or it can look like addiction. And so when we were writing this book, one of my co-authors said that trauma is like a hallway of doors. You don't know what you're going to get behind the door that you open. It might be a ballroom or it might be a closet. It's just sort of this multi-faceted thing. And so I've got this long laundry list of what does trauma response look like? What does it involve? You know, it involves all levels of our humanity, uh, intergenerational, our, our neurobiology, our physiology, our history. And so, as I'm speaking 
you know, all of these levels affect all of us. So um, my whole point is to try and make life a bit easier for anyone who hears this information, right? How can something that is totally uncomfortable and something you may even not want to think about again, how could that be a bit easier by having more um, tools around trauma, even to think about it? So if you, if you like, you can think about something that is uncomfortable, you know, uncomfortable conflict. So trauma, it looks like a tree. That's what it looks like. And so this, this is a tree diagram that's from some trauma research called Adverse Childhood Experiences. And so uh, until recent history, we only looked at one part of the tree, the part we can see above the surface, right? The, the branches and the leaves. And so we often looked at these as, as personal failings. You know, someone has addiction or there's, they're incarcerated. And so what we now know about trauma from the research is it's always coming in a pair, right? There's always something underneath. The question that Gabor Mate says about, to ask about addiction is not why the addiction, but why the pain? So we need to like, you know, the intelligent humans we are, look at the roots, looking at the systemic violence, uh, systemic racism, poverty, community unsafety. And so in practice, what I find with lawyers is often if I ask a lawyer, oh, do you work with trauma in your practice? Unless they're working in criminal law, they might say no. But if I ask, do you have difficult clients in your practice? Everyone nods their head. And so I'm reminded of what Pastor Glenn was saying about the, the member of the, of the Ku Klux Klan who was invited to join community. And so um, you know, this is a very astute insight that was had about, you know, I'm, I'm not sure what this person had going on in their background, but certainly they presented as, as a difficult person. So, and what we need to understand about trauma is that it, it may show up in a behavior or in a mentality or in a way relationships are made without other clues really being obvious around it. I'm going to skip over, skip through some of these slides so we can have a little more connection on this. So it shows up in biopsychosocial terms. And so, but we don't need to be psychologists to deal with it. We only need to know enough to know, oh, I think that there are some signs here of trauma. Maybe I'll slow down. And instead of being in judgment, I'll use my skills around non-judgment and curiosity, communication, and perception. And so this is what author Marjorie Silver talks about. She talks about working effectively in order to be effective. So when we see trauma, it's usually under the surface, but when we see conflict, we're trained to work with the words, right? We're trained to look at the conscious response and the intellectual response and the cognitive stuff. But if someone is affected by violence, they may not um, have a full command of their narrative or their memory because that's how our body works, right? You know, we are wired to survive. And so it doesn't, you know, our, our body understands that it doesn't matter if we remember something, if we can't survive it. We have to first run away from the person who's attacking us. And then this in turn, as peace workers, as conflict workers can affect us. So a doctor named Rachel Naomi Remen had a wonderful observation that I think is true of conflict the expectation that we can be immersed in suffering and loss daily and not be touched by it is as unrealistic as expecting to be able to walk through water without getting wet. So the idea is to, you know, when you're with the, every person is an iceberg, right? Me, you, everybody. And so when you're with someone and you're resolving a conflict, to be conscious of the water that connects us all and the water that is under the surface, everything that's under the surface there from culture, to trauma responses, to memory narrative, how relationships are formed, how emotions show up. So um, I often talk about grief in these presentations and we just talked about that. So I think we have a felt understanding and also at this time, grief is not normal, right? It's interrupted by even just having Zoom as a process for, for our <coughs> processing of grief. So neurobiology of trauma, you know, this is uh, something that isn't understood and it can be 
counterintuitive in practice, right? So when trauma arises, when something is threatening us, uh, the limbic brain takes over our executive function. And so the amygdala, the part of the limbic brain that senses danger and sends out alarm signals, it signals the hippocampus, which usually focuses on coding memory. It says, hey, hippocampus, produce cortisol so we can re respond to this stress. So if you've ever talked to someone, a friend or a family member, and something really bad happened to them, but they can't remember the whole thing, and you kind of wondered why, this is why, right? And this is what police need to be trained in and are starting to be trained in, and what lawyers need to be trained in, and, you know, and prison, you know, correctional services. I don't think we need more prisons, but everybody needs to understand this. And so what are some tools we can use? This is the part where we're hopefully making life a bit easier. And this is multi-level communications, right? So in the book, we've got this wheel of trauma-informed practice tools. And so communication is key, as is cultural humility, relational practices, embodiment, mindfulness practices, emotional well-being, meaning-making, and self and collective care. And so you know, we can focus on communication. So thinking back to this trauma as a tree, we're always sitting under this tree when we speak with someone and there's a conflict, right? Always the roots of the, and branches of their tree and ours and of society are there. So when we see a client, when I see a client, I'm thinking about, okay, what roots and branches are present for them of the trauma? And also what resources do they have, right? What communication needs and resources do they have? What needs and resources do they have around trust, adaptation, learning, safety, all of these things. And so when speaking with lawyers, the main skill that needs to be imparted is lawyers are taught to analyze, right? This is our currency. This is what we're valued for. And so it's actually a skill to learn to use non-judgment alongside analysis, right? So listening first, caring first, showing the whoever it is, the client or fellow human, that actually I, I care that you're here. I, I care that you're safe. And then we can analyze. So caring first, non-judgment as opposed to, usually it's, oh my goodness, what's the problem? Well, that's a judgment, right? And so, and focusing on peace as a process, not just the outcome. And so here we already spoke about Brian, right? Brian Stevenson. We have to do things that are un uncomfortable and inconvenient, you know? And also we have to gain proximity. We can't problem solve from a distance. We, can't, we have no idea from a distance what's happening. And so to have some practical tools to take away with you today, the shifts really are from the assumptions that we make, you know, that we communicate or that we even have in our minds, right? So often working with lawyers, the lawyer will think, oh, the client is difficult or has a problem. And the trauma-informed approach to this is, oh, how can I see this from their perspective? What have they experienced, right? But Difficult when the person is exhibiting a behavior like the, the Ku Klux Klan member, right? And asking what they experienced, that might be quite a challenge. That's an advanced level of understanding that was shown. Client relationship, we have to ask questions about that or a relationship with each other. You know, we often think, oh, this person should trust me because I'm qualified, I'm a professional, I'm this, I'm that. Instead of, we need to ask, what do they need to feel safe, to trust, to disclose? Client needs, uh, lawyers are often say, well, they just need to do what I say. I'm the lawyer, I've, you know, I'm the one who's busy with all these um, things I'm dealing with. And instead we must ask what support is needed to work together and to learn together, especially under stress. Communication, instead of assuming the person can't get their story straight, they're not credible. We must ask what is the broader context of how this memory narrative was formed? And finally, you know, we can't resolve conflict in a, in a healthy way if we're completely stressed out ourselves. We don't have our full resources. And also through mirror neurons, we transmit that stress to whoever we're around. And so we have to ask ourselves, what happened to me? What have I experienced? Instead of assuming that only clients are impacted by trauma. 
So there are more, you know, details around this. We have a therapist in the book who talks about the certain details, you know, focusing on basic, focusing on giving what is taken by trauma, focusing on giving an opportunity to consent, to be listened to, to be validated, to have transparency, to see what's next and to feel safe. So that's really it. That's really it, you know, and, uh, Pastor Glenn really just gave us such a wonderful living example of what it's all about. There is no, there is no nice, convenient path, right? So got the book stuff and all this stuff. I have a website here. Um, there's a newsletter and I've got a, um, a resources page and a, a Twitter account. And this is how to get in touch and uh, signing up for the newsletter. I'm happy to send book updates. But really, I mean, we're in this, this time that is just, I'm going to stop sharing this screen now. Um, uh, how many times can we use the word unprecedented? And so, you know, we're, who is comfortable right now? And so it is my hope that, you know, through some of these tools, each of us can find ways to contend with this discomfort and inconvenience and gain proximity and think higher, feel deeper. Mm. Mm. I th I'm not sure if I went five minutes over there or where we're at and Pastor Glenn, I've I would invite you to share whatever is on your mind. If you so choose. If not, right. then Dan, Kathy, whoever would like to speak or questions are welcome to. Well, I thank you for doing the work. I mean, this is what's needed. And, and uh, so often uh, preachers and men of the cloth, sometimes they, they, they're so in, in, engulfed in their work. They don't really, uh, they don't always look at other uh, um, genres or other uh, uh, other um, places in, 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 in looking for help. And so you you being a lawyer, um, you're bringing your expertise from the law and how uh, we can use your expertise in helping us get through some of these and navigate through some of these problems. And, and what it shows is that it, it, you know, it takes a village for us to come together. It's not just one, it, one skill set that comes to the table, but we need, it's all hands on deck. So the, the professionalism, that, that was a great presentation, uh, the, professionalism, the, the professionalism that you bring to the table, you know, is, is, it's, it's inspiring because it lets people who are, uh, you know, in the throes of the work, it gives them an outlet, you know, to, to, and resources and tools. But sometimes you get, you get tired of using the same tools and your tools are worn out and you need some help. You need some other tools to implement in the fight. And so with these uh, conversations and with these uh, connections, we can, we, can, uh, we can help each other. We can, we can support one another. And so uh, I, again, I thank you for what you're doing. And uh, I, I, I think that these conversations, we need to have more of these conversations because a lot of people don't really understand or, or know that we have access to these this information. Thank you so much. Thank you. So much. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> I'm very grateful to both of you and I really appreciate how this has flowed. Um, I, I wanna give other folks a chance to, to join in if folks have a reaction, if anybody was, was moved, is moved to, to share anything, um, you can, um, use the icon at the bottom of your screen to raise your hand, or there's few enough of us that you can probably just raise your hand and let us know that you want to talk um, if you don't find that electronic method. Um, anybody would like to join the conversation? I want to open that up with a question for Helgi or for Pastor Glenn around what we've heard. I'd like to know like Helgi's webpage. Yeah, so yeah, you can so go to traumainformedlaw.org trauma or just Google or just my Google name, it comes, my name it comes up. It's a weird <laughs> name I have here. So it's <laughs> an unusual name. Unusual name. And it uh, makes it easier to find. And so what I put on the website is basically a database. It's a resource 
and that it was it's going to be included in the book. I have a question. Um, I, from what I have seen so far, I see a, a lot about um, lawyers can learn to uh, approach clients um, with a, a different understanding and a different set of sensibilities. And I imagine that transferring out into their view of the rest of their of their interactions, the rest of their of their professional world with with judges, with other attorneys, potentially. Um, but I, I wonder if you have a map in your mind of how this um, may, you know, a projection um, more than a map, like um, of, of how this may begin to influence the way law is practiced, you know, in courtrooms or between attorneys or, you know, in legislatures even. Um, so far, I see it in, in the context of serving clients and appreciating where a client is coming from. But do you, do you have a sense of transforming the, the, uh, the more procedural, practical aspects of the law? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Working in this Working. way holds the possibility to transform at three levels. One is at the individual level. So for someone who is aggressive needlessly, or you know, sometimes we do need to stand our ground, but who is needlessly conflict-oriented, for them to have an awareness of not only what it's doing to the other person, probably creating a disincentive to engaging with the legal system at all, and that's not access to justice, but also to understand what they're doing to themselves, right? Mm -hmm. Understand the trauma they carry, yeah. right? To understand why am I suffering from depression or anxiety or addiction or broken relationships, right? To turn light on there. So that's at the individual level, number one. Number two is the relationship le le uh, level. And so I talked a lot about that because it's, lawyers feel safer. It's like, oh, this is for the client, right? I don't need to be vulnerable. This is for the client. So hopefully it can transform that. And number three, and what I love most about this approach, you know, I love all kinds of peacemaking, restorative justice, you name it. But, you know, restorative justice, we go, we start to think we need a court, we need a special thing, you know, someone needs to create something, spend some money. Trauma-informed practice, you can, we can do today. I can do it at my dinner table with, you know, my family. I can do it in any organization I'm in. I can do it with my friends, right? I can do it with my mom. And so, it's something we can do with anyone, everyone. We can take it anywhere. It can be part of your practice. And so, uh, and it, it generally, people seem to like this approach. They feel more understood, right? Mm -hmm. And so, there's a there's a not that non judgment has such power. Yeah. What one one person I worked with, I worked on a, a case. Uh, it's, it's famous in Canada. It's called the. I worked on. Um, the aftermath of this thing called the Gomeshi trial. So it's like our Canadian Bill Cosby, let's put it that way. And so one of the witnesses in the trial, the trial didn't go in the way that the survivors and witnesses had hoped. And so one of them approached me and said, what can we do? What can I do? And so we advocated now, there's a new training in Canada, mandatory federal judge training on sexual assault, including trauma and uh, systemic racism. And so <clears throat> her observation was that the justice system is a lottery system. And I said, what do you mean when the, my client said that? She said, well, I don't know how I'm going to be treated. Mm -hmm. It's not just I won't know the outcome. I don't know how I'm going to be treated. That's not justice. If, if we understand the neurobiology of trauma in where I live, but not where you live, how is that justice? We all have the same, you know, neuroscientific basis of how our brains work. Mm -hmm. So I do, you know, I see that uh, it's interesting that places affected by deep trauma are often ones that are transforming. So in Rwanda, for instance, the court system is being reformed. So much of the courts are being done away with it's only going to be, you know, complex litigation that's left for the courts to do and everything else will be some form of restorative or community justice. And when we look at where the backlog is in the legal system, access to justice, it's things that are complicated and involve trauma. So I do hope that this can provide a tool. So we have problems mm -hmm. solving courts everywhere. Scotland is, it sounds like a funny example maybe, but they're doing a whole countrywide training on trauma. 
because it had such high levels of addiction and, and violence. There's a prevalence there of, of, uh, of knife related violence. <clears throat> and so they've done this training and they find that it can reduce often by half indicia of violence. It can improve school environments. And then also there's a health impact when, when trauma awareness is brought in, it can improve health related conditions. So Nadine Burke Harris, Dr. Nadine Burke Harris, who's in California, uh, she wrote this book called The Deepest Well. She has a TED talk has been viewed, you know, 8 million times or something like this. And so she talks about all this, this data, right? And so generally across the board, it seems like violence can go down at least by half if you have this understanding. Right. And also that trauma, if unaddressed, can double certain health risks, right? Mm -hmm. Cancer, heart disease, just think right. of all the stress, right? All the things that, that stress can do to us. Yeah. So it's a longer term vision, right? Yeah. Yeah, it makes, it makes so much sense. Thank you. Th thanks for your work and thanks for mapping it out for us. Thanks for bringing it here. Thank you for um, having me. Tonight, yeah, it's a, it's a pleasure. As, as usual, we could go on for another hour or several. You know, if we had, we had breaks, we could make this an all-day event, but we are in the last minute of our call and we like to respect time. Um, I'm really sorry about whoever has a hand up. I'm willing to stay longer after we officially close the call um, but we need to officially keep it within an hour. So um, I'm going to say thank you so much to our guests and, and hand it over to Kathy. I'll stick around okay. afterwards if, if folks want to have discussion. Um, but but at, the, at the top of the hour, we'll officially say we're, we're done and, and stop the recording. So thanks, thanks for joining us. Over to Kathy. We didn't get time to properly say goodbye to you, Dan. So I'm going to invite everybody to email you, dan at peacealliance.org for anything you'd like to say to Dan, any appreciation you'd like to give to him. And I'll just end with a, a brief quote. World peace must develop from inner peace. Peace is not just mere absence of violence. Peace is, I think, the manifestation of human compassion. And that's by the Dalai Lama. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Pastor Glenn and um, Helgi. I don't know if she's still, oh, there you are. Thank you both. And thank you so much, Dan, for the service you've given to the Peace Alliance over the last 15 years or however long it's been. It's been my pleasure. It's been a, yeah. it's been a privilege. It really has we been a privilege. We love you. We love this you. Role. I love you all too. Thanks, yeah. Kathy. Thank you. Good night, everybody. Good night.